built with wisdom and not just sweat and blood and timber. Here in this house, I've shared in building it, but I didn't lift a finger. And I've seen the gospel spoken through the words my brothers live and in the angels who have come to We don't want to forget how we got from here. We are five days away from fundamentally transforming the United States of America. To here. And when your son looks at you and says, Mama, look, you won. Bullies don't win. And no. I said, baby, they don't. Because we're going to go in there and we're going to impeach the mother. was founded after 9-11 because they recognized that some people did something and that all of us were starting to lose access to our civil liberties. Without thinking, we might get here. Are we ready for the revolution? Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Here in This House. I am your host, David Allen, and I am recording from inside my truck today. It's seven below and my fuel is gelling up and I will never find time to get this podcast done unless I do it on the road. So that's what I'm going to start doing today. Um, what you just heard uh, is a progression from where we've come. We didn't realize what Obama was saying at the time. At least I didn't realize the depth of what he was trying to, to do to dismantle um, our, our freedom in this country. And you can clearly see the path we're going down. And it hasn't stopped here yet, guys. Um, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, uh, even Joe Biden, they're all left. They all are for government takeover. And uh, I'm gonna play a clip here next uh, of a fellow by the name of Kyle Jurek. He's a field organizer for Bernie Sanders' campaign. It's frightening what this guy is talking about. I mean, it's truly, it's like Castro's Cuba. And that's what they are trying to implement in, um, uh, in this election. That's what they're trying to implement in our government if they get elected. And, and then they're going to pass it off as all this great stuff, just like every other left communist... Co um, uh, regime does and uh, we got to fight folks we're, we're gonna lose this country and um, we're gonna lose our freedoms our religious freedoms our our daily freedoms and so uh, but I'm gonna play this clip for you and um, and let you just hear for yourself just how uh, how radical these people really are like free speech has repercussions so if Trump gets re-elected, what? F***ing cities burn. The only thing that fascists understand is violence. So the only way that you can confront them is with violence. Guys like that. What are we going to do with them? Gulag. <laughs> Liberals get the fucking wall first. What are we going to do with those people that resist the change? Because that's a big deal. I'll tell you what, in Cuba, what do they do to reactionaries? They shot them on the beach. You want to fight against the revolution? You're going to die for it, <laughs> motherfucker. So again, everybody, I uh, apologize for the background noise. Um, I'm in my truck today and I'm really wanting to finish this podcast. Uh, it's been a while. I've been having a hard time breaking away and getting the time to, to do what I want to do. Um, so I do a lot of research and two days later, everything's changed so much that I got to do more research. So, um, but I assure you I'm hands-free, I'm safe, I'm just talking. So um, what you just heard there was uh, done by a company, uh, an organization called Veritas.org, uh, uh, Project Veritas. And uh, they go undercover and they expose uh, these 
devious people for who they really are. They um, they went in. They were the ones that went in and did um, uh, work to expose Planned Parenthood, what they were doing for selling uh, baby parts and uh, just the horrendous uh, things that they're doing. And now they uh, went undercover with the Bernie Sanders campaign. Now you know, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt that Bernie may not know exactly how radical this guy is, but he was with him for six months. And um, I would think that somewhere in that chain, uh, he's a field organizer, so, you know, he's busy with the campaign going and and setting up uh, uh, their various campaign uh, promotions and everything. And uh, the bottom line is, is... This far left uh, ideology is is connected to Bernie. It's connected to the Democrats, and, and the Democrats have allowed themselves to um, let these people leech onto them, and to the point where now they need them. Uh, I honestly think that the true Democrats, if there are any left, I know there's some left. I I, I don't want to beat down every Democrat because I actually know some good ones and. Um, I, I could debate with them and have a, a, a meaningful debate about things and not um, not be so polarized. But uh, I really think they need to divorce themselves from the uh, from the left. I mean, the left is latched on like a bunch of parasites, and they're 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 actually uh, you know using the Democratic Party to gain power. And it's, it's very frightening, people. Uh, you know, we grew up in a different world only 50 years ago. Uh, I grew up in the 60s and the 70s. And it started back then. It started long before that. I mean, the communists have been trying to get in here since the early 1900s. And, um, and how they've done it is they've gotten into the education system, the universities, and uh, the seminaries. Uh, our churches are so brainwashed right now with a uh, secular uh, theology. Well, it's not a theology, but it's ideology mixed in with their theology, and um, it's poisonous. Um, but we're really running a risk if, if I mean, the worst-case scenario, if, if Trump was either to be impeached, which... Uh, just a quick thing on that. Don't think he can't be right now. It's very dangerous where they're at going to the Senate. He's got enemies everywhere. And um, and they hate him because he is doing... He is taking this country back to, to uh, where it should be. To its uh, Judeo-Christian roots. Um, you don't like him. You don't like his tweets. You don't like you know, how he talks to people. Uh, he is the uh, instrument that God has used to um, to help try and bring this country back um, from the degradation that it's, it's fallen into. It's just, um, it's horrible. But um, at any rate, the left is, is using the Democrats to try and um, to, to gain power. And if the Democrats were smart, they would uh, separate. They would uh, completely separate from the left. And instead of... Because they need each other. That's the problem. Neither one of them will be strong enough to uh, break... uh, uh, To beat the Republicans. So they're desperate. And it shows. Um, This impeachment is desperation. It shows. So now, as we head into the 2020 election, uh, and I know they, people say this so often that this is the most important election in our lifetime, but it really is. Um, you can see just since Obama made that we're five days away from fundamentally transforming the United States of America, he, it's working. And, and we have to fight. We have to get off uh, out of our chairs and, and, and get busy and fight for this. This isn't going to happen by uh, just go away because, hey, we're good old USA and uh, 
they're, they're making inroads and uh, they have worked uh, a very long time to infiltrate our schools, our churches, and um, and our children. Uh, just the other day, uh, my son Samuel come home from school and he said, "That's it. I'm done with Trump." He he got a uh, an Iranian official killed. I go, "What?" So at school, this is what they're talking about. Um, that that they said that they told them that Trump had killed an Iranian an Iranian official, like you know, killing somebody in our government. I said, "No, President Trump." had a terrorist uh, taken out. He had him killed. And it was very precise. And there was no collateral damage. It was done very clean. And uh, he made a decision that two other presidents uh, wouldn't do it. Uh, Bush and Obama both had a chance to take this guy out. And he's killed, uh, I'm talking about Soleimani. So, uh, at any rate, that's the brainwashing that's going on in our uh, schools. My daughter comes home and she uh, says that we're homophobic. And so I ask her, well, what, what is homophobic? What does that mean? Well, it means that uh, you don't like uh, gay people and uh, that you reject them and everything. And I said, well, a phobia is, is like a, uh, a strong, irrational response to something. And, and, and to say I disagree with uh, same-sex marriage and that I disagree and that I agree with Scripture, the Bible, that says that uh, homosexuality is an abomination, that's not phobic. That is taking facts and truth and applying them in the real world. And so I had a long conversation with her, but... They're, you know, they're, they are struggling to pass math. They're struggling to pass um, science in these classes. Yet there's plenty of time in these schools to indoctrinate. And I'm, I'm, I plan on doing everything I can in the next year to get them out of completely out of the public schools if I can, if I can afford it. But in the meantime, if you guys, you know, you have kids in public schools. It's our job as parents to teach them our history, our true history. It's our job to teach them um, what our freedoms are all about. And if we don't know them ourselves, we're not able to teach it to them. And, and you're going to have to go out of your way uh, to, to study it and find out. You're not going to find it in the mainstream media, certainly not. You're not going to find it in the secular world. Um, you're going to have to go online. I get a lot of my information from uh, the American Family Association. And you go there and there are a ton of links um, to organizations that are telling the truth. Uh, news One is a place to get news. Um, because you won't even find these uh, recordings that I put up here today. Uh, I haven't heard them on the mainstream media. I heard them on uh, Sandy Rios. Uh, she's one of the uh, talk show hosts on uh, AFA. Uh, you're not going to hear it. They, they are going to suppress that. They, that's the last thing they want you to know is their true intentions. And uh, and like I said, I'll give some of them a benefit of the doubt. They, I mean, they're useful. Uh, what are they call they're useful idiots. Uh, they don't even know to what degree they um, are being used, but they are being used because the ultimate goal of the extreme left is to make us Cuba, to make us Russia, to take away our rights, um, to, uh, to, to completely remove Christianity from uh, our, our public square in the culture. Um, and I know this sounds apocalyptic and, 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 you know, extreme, but all you got to do is look at history. All you got to look at, do is, is look at what happened in Germany. They had a uh, state-sponsored religion. What happened in Russia? They, they, they murdered thousands and thousands. Stalin murdered millions of his own people. 
and he knew that he had to eliminate religion or the church because uh, because it's true and it's it's the power of God that changes people and so we're up against this the uh, hearts of men that are evil and wicked and um, and we're up against sin and even our own sin but so we're, we're heading into a battle here going into 2020 we need to take back the house because these Democrats I mean it's obviously you've watched the impeachment and Nancy Pelosi I mean they've just become blatant about it today I saw that she was handing out commemorative pins for the uh for the impeachment in the Senate. I mean, come on. This is not a game. This is not some uh, club that you belong to or, or some team that we're on and, hey, we're going to win, so we're going to send out comm- commemorative pins. That's sick. I mean, that's just... I, I don't have words for that. But uh, these people know... Uh, they have no fear of God, and they and they know no boundaries. I mean, they will do whatever they can to to take away uh, and erase what Trump has done. And it's great what he's done in the courts, especially. That's at least even if he he got impeached, at least what he's done in the courts has has at least put uh, somewhat of a roadblock in the way of the. Um, of the Democrats and the left um, because that's the method that they've used for the past 50 years. They haven't gone through Congress. They haven't passed legislation. They've they've changed it through through the courts, and and we all know this. And so um, what Trump is doing and reversing, uh, if he can get another Supreme Court justice in there and continue uh, to put ju- uh, uh, new ju- or, uh, judges in the appellate court, um, it will change our culture. Well, I don't know if it'll change our culture, but it will put, it will change the way that they have operated for the last 50 years. And they will have to go the way the Constitution was written is you want to write a law, you go through uh, the the Congress. So what I encourage everybody to do this election season is to get involved any way that you can. Uh, find out what uh, who your representative is that's running uh, on the Republican side. And hey, if you're a Democrat and you're fighting for all these things that they're fighting for, you know, that is your right, your privilege, and be be glad you still have them. Um, But at any rate, uh, find out who's running and then call up, uh, call up the campaign and and ask, what can I do? Uh, Even if it's just sending out information, even if it's just getting the word out, um, I'll tell you what, I know... (laughs) The left is is they they are very very busy trying to get their message out. I happened to find something the other day uh, that they were they were trying to get a bill into Congress that would make it make a law that would require Congress to have the same benefits that they passed for, you know, the populace, for, for, in other words, they couldn't have special, uh, uh, care and, and, and all this stuff, and so I saw it, and I signed on to it, come to find out, it's moveon.org, <laughs> uh, and hey, I, I, I agreed with them on this one, yeah, the Congress shouldn't have any special privileges, let's, um, Let's pass a law, and, and, and they have to live by the same rules we live by. So, I don't know, about a week later, I, I get this uh, text that comes over, and it says, uh, Hey, do you want to run for government? We'll show you how. It, local government in our areas, that's how they do it. They come in, they're infiltrating um, our local governments, um, 
and, and there's a lot of money behind them. Uh, George Soros filters money through all kinds of these organizations. Uh, George Soros and, and a whole host of left uh, uh, supporters. And uh, so, yeah, they, <laughs> I wanted to run them back and say, well, sure, I'll, I'm Republican, but I'll be glad to do that for you. I, I mean, run for office, even if it's local. Because that's what they're trying to do. Uh, they're trying to get in at the lower levels now. They know it's too hard to get in at the top. So they're, they're going to try and eat it away at the bottom. And uh, they're relentless. So I would suggest that you do something, anything, to help the cause and to switch this, this house back. Because, uh, you know, they have taken the power that they have there. And just look what they've done. I mean, just, just look what they've done with the impeachment alone. If they ever get uh, full power again, it will be devastating for us. Um, so get involved and do what you can to help make a change. So now I'll uh, update you on what's happening with uh, the lymphoma. Uh, it's The lymphoma that I have is nodal marginal zone lymphoma. And... Uh, it's it's non-Hodgkin's and it's uh, it's rare, which doesn't mean really anything. It's just not a lot of people get this particular type of uh, lymphoma. But at any rate, um, I have gone through testing. Uh, they've done bone marrow uh, biopsy, and then uh, I went in for a PET scan where they scan everything. And uh, Tomorrow, I get to go in for a colonoscopy and an upper GI. They're checking me inside and out. I think they're going to have the IRS in there with them. Anyway, um, so I'll let you know what comes out. Uh, initially, the prognosis is really pretty good. Uh, the, the doctor says he does not see chemotherapy. He doesn't think that's very likely. Possibly some uh, radiation, like locally, uh, if they find any more... Uh, of the lymph nodes were around the ones that they, the one that they took out uh, affected, then they would uh, treat it with uh, radiation. So I'll do that, um, the colonoscopy thing tomorrow, and then next week I meet with my doctor and we'll find out what the treatment's going to be. So it's really a pretty good a prognosis. I'm pretty happy with it. I feel blessed. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I think, wow, you know, I know people have been praying and I know that changes things, and and uh, so thank you because uh, if you're going to get something like this, um, and if I get away without any having to do any treatment and just keep monitoring it and make sure it doesn't come back, uh, I consider that a miracle. I consider that God doing something really great. And so, at any rate, that's um, that's where we are on that. And, so there's a lot more I want to talk about, guys. Um, I, like I said, I've had a difficult time getting uh, to break away and, and really, you know, study what I I want to study uh, to get information out that'll help you guys. But honestly, um, if you go to the AFA um, and 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 uh, there's a Liberty Council, that's another group that. Uh, you find out what's going on uh, in the courts and everything. Um, but go to AFA and go to the links and just start looking up. Get, get Turn off the TV. Turn off the idiot box and, and, and go and dig for yourself. Um, and uh, don't listen to Google. I mean, I can tell you stories about my Google. And uh, I can't tell you how many times I tell them not to give me any more Huffington, Huffington Post's. And uh, after about two or three, maybe four times, I'm finally not getting them anymore, but they try and sneak them back in. And uh, I mean, it's, they have an agenda and they, they, they are trying to promote it. So that's why it's just amazing that uh, Trump and, um, and that administration that we have there right now are, are so successful because uh, in spite of all of this, um, we, he's doing great things, and um, if we get him another four years, I, I think we'll do some irreversible, at least in our lifetimes, damage uh, to their uh, to their cause. And 
and if we just educate our, our people around us, educate our kids, because they are they are telling a lie, uh, the, the lie that the government can take care of you, the government can do it all, and um, and uh, it, it's socialism, and uh, socialism really is communism. I mean, they'll, they'll take it. There will be nothing if it starts to stop them. Uh, they they will take it to the. Uh, you know, it's a race to the bottom, and they will they will take it to the bottom. So, um, anyway, I will put up a link to the um, the video from uh, Project Veritas on my uh, Facebook page, so that you can uh, go there and watch this thing itself. Because there's a lot more on there, and it's just it's, it's unbelievable that, <laughs> that what they pulled out of there. It's just I, I was just shocked. I, I couldn't believe. And um, so I'll put that up on the Facebook page. And if you want to find out more information about uh, different sources you can get your news and information from, it's uh, afa.net. It's uh, American Family Association. And uh, that's a good start. There's a lot more out there. Uh, but, but you can start there. And if you want to try and reach me... Um, you can get me at here in this house podcast at gmail.com and uh, a Facebook is here in this house and uh, I'd really love to hear from some of you and uh, just give me input on to what you think of the podcast how I can improve it um, and uh, and just what do you think of the content anything you'd want to hear um, and I'm working on improving this I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to just keep moving forward uh, lastly, I am, um, instead of putting a song at the end of the podcast, um, I have a speech by uh, the Attorney General William Barr, Bill Barr, um, that he gave uh, at Notre Dame on, uh, religious, on, on liberty, uh, freedom. And um, it's, a, it's about 45 minutes long, but it is the most profound uh, speech I've ever heard on our freedom and uh, what this country is all about and uh, it's long you can listen to it while you're driving and um, it's um, it's it's very very good so that's going to be on the end of the podcast instead of the song I'll get a song out here next time so thanks again for listening and uh, we'll see you next time thank you very much thanks Tom uh, for your kind introduction, uh, Bill and, and Roger, it's good to, to be with you uh, also. Your Honors, Your Excellency, friends from the Notre Dame community, I do feel a special connection uh, with Notre Dame. I did have uh, one of my uncles went to Notre Dame, and my youngest daughter, Meg, Margaret, went to Notre Dame. Two of my nephews went to Notre Dame. In fact, their father, my brother Stevie, Stephen Barr, is here uh, and is at Notre Dame, I think, for a semester. Right, Steve? Uh, he's the smart one in the family. He's a theoretical particle physicist, and he writes a lot about the relationship between science and, and physics. So I'm glad to get to see him. I don't get to see him that often. I'd like to thank uh, Notre Dame uh, law School and the Danicola uh, Center for Ethics and Culture for graciously extending uh, this invitation to speak to you. Uh, and I'm looking forward after this speech to uh, answering uh, questions. Uh, I'd like to thank Tony Danicola, whose generous support has shaped and continues to shape countless minds through examination of Catholic moral, uh, of the Catholic moral and intellectual tradition. When my daughter, uh, Meg, after she, after she uh, graduated and ultimately went to law school, she became uh, very ill for a period of time. And I knew there were great kids at Notre Dame, people of great character. And for a long period of time, there was always one of her classmates visiting us. Uh, they worked it out, so there was always someone coming to, to visit us while she was being treated in the hospital and so forth. And we got very close to all her friends and we loved them to death. And Notre Dame will always have a special place in my heart because of that. And 
I have uh, five grandchildren now with another on the way, and I'd be very proud if they all end up at Notre Dame. Um, Meg, incidentally, recovered and got married recently. She got married on December 8th, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. And uh, the day before, I got a call from the president uh, who was walking out to the helicopters, and he said, Bill, I know we talked about putting the announcement off until after your daughter's wedding, but I'd sort of like to do it today if it's okay with you, but it, it's, up, it's totally up to you. And I said, well, Mr. President, we talked about it, and whatever suits you, you know, we'll adjust to. That'll be fine. And I said, okay, well, I'll do it now while I'm walking out to the helicopters. <clears throat> so I turned on the, I was, you know, lounging around in, uh, in my study at home, and I turned on the television. And it was sort of the first of a number of outer body experiences I've had since then. Because he walks over and he goes, I'm uh, selecting Bill Barr to be Attorney General of the United States. And... Uh, that was the day before, that was Pearl Harbor Day, December 7th, and the next day was my daughter's wedding, and she said to me, Pop, you're the only guy I know who would upstage his daughter at his own, <laughs> at her own, at her wedding. But, I, but when I gave the toast, I said, uh, you know, Meg, it's, it's, it's okay, because just as the bar name is gonna be dragged through the mud, you're changing your name to McGaughy. <laughs> Uh, today, I would like to, to share some thoughts with you about religious liberty in America. Uh, it's an important priority in this administration and for this Department of Justice. We've set up a task force within the department in which all the various components that uh, have equities in this area, the Solicitor General's Office, the Civil Division, the Office of Legal Counsel, and other offices are all represented and we have regular meetings and we keep an eye out for cases or events around the country where, where states are misapplying the Establishment Clause in a way that discriminates against uh, people of faith uh, or cases where, where uh, uh, states adopt laws that impinge upon the free exercise of religion. From the founding era onward, there was strong consensus uh, about the centrality of religious liberty in the United States. The imperative of protecting religious freedom was not just a nod in the direction of piety. It reflects the framers' belief that religion was indispensable to sustaining our free system of government. In his renowned 1785 pamphlet, Memorial and Remonstrance Against Religious Assessments, James Madison described religious liberty as a right towards men, but a duty towards the creator, and a duty precedent, both in order of time and degree of obligation to the claims of civil society. It has been over 230 years since that small group of colonial lawyers led a revolution, and launched what they viewed as a great experiment, establishing a society fundamentally different than anything that had come before. They crafted a magnificent charter of freedom, the United States Constitution, which provides for limited government while leaving the people broadly at liberty to pursue their lives, both as individuals and through their free associations. This quantum leap in liberty has been the mainspring of unprecedented human progress, not only for Americans, but for people around the world. In the 20th century, our form of free society faced a severe test. There's always been the question whether a democracy so solicitous of individual freedom could stand up against the regimented totalitarian state? That question was answered with a resounding yes as the United States stood up against and defeated first fascism and then communism. But in the 21st century, we face an entirely different kind of challenge. 
The challenge we face is precisely what the Founding Fathers foresaw would be the supreme test of a free society. They never thought that the main danger to the Republic would come from external foes. The central question was whether, over the long haul, we the people could handle freedom. The question was whether the citizens in such a free society could maintain the moral discipline and virtue necessary for the survival of free institutions. By and large, the founding generation's view of human nature was drawn from the classical Christian tradition. These practical state statesmen understood that individuals, while having the potential for great good, also had the capacity for great evil. Men are subject to powerful passions and appetites, and if unrestrained, are capable of ruthlessly riding roughshod over their neighbors and the community at large. No society can exist without some means of restraining individual rapacity. But if you rely on the coercive power of the government to impose those restraints, the framers believed, this would inevitably lead to a government that is too controlling, and you would end up with no liberty, just tyranny. On the other hand, unless you had some effective restraint, you end up with something equally dangerous, licentiousness, the unbridled pursuit of personal appetites at the expense of the common good. This is just another form of tyranny, where the individual is enslaved by his appetites and the possibility of any healthy community life crumbles. Edmund Burke summed up this point in his typically colorful language. Men are qualified for civil liberty in exact proportion to their disposition to put chains upon their own appetites. Society cannot exist unless a controlling power be placed somewhere, and less of it there is within, the more of it there must be without. It is ordained in the eternal constitution of things that men of intemperate minds cannot be free. Their passions forge their fetters. So the founders decided to take a gamble, and they called it a great experiment. They would leave the people broad liberty, they would limit the coercive power of the government, and they would place their trust in the self-discipline and virtue of the American people. In the words of Madison, we have staked our future on the ability of each of us to govern ourselves. And this is really what they meant by self-government. It did not mean primarily the mechanics by which we select a representative legislature. It referred to the capacity of each individual to restrain and govern themselves. But what was the source of this internal controlling power? In a free republic, those restraints could not be handed down from above by philosopher kings. Instead, social order must flow up from the people themselves, freely obeying the dictates of inwardly possessed and commonly shared moral values. And to control willful human beings with an infinite capacity to rationalize, those moral values must rest on authority independent of men's wills. They must flow from the transcendent supreme being. In short, the framers, in the framers' view, free government was only suitable and sustainable for a religious people, a people who recognized that there was a transcendent moral order antecedent to both the state and to man-made laws and had the discipline to control themselves according to those enduring principles. As, James, as John Adams put it, we have no government armed with the power which is capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. And as Father John Courtney Murray observed, the American tenet was not that free government is inevitable, only that it is possible and that its possibility can be realized only when the people as a whole 
are inwardly governed by the recognized imperatives of the universal moral order. Well, how does religion promote moral discipline and, and the virtue needed to sustain free government? Well, first, it, it gives us rules to live by. The founding generation were Christians, and they believed that the Judeo-Christian moral system corresponds to the true nature of man. And those rules speak to man and fulfill man both in his private spiritual life and in his communal life. Those moral precepts start, of course, in Christianity with the two great commandments, to love God with your whole heart, soul, and mind, and to love thy neighbor as thyself. But they also include the guidance of natural law, a real transcendent moral order which flows from God's eternal law, the divine wisdom by which the whole of creation is ordered. The eternal law is impressed upon and reflected in all created things. And from the nature of things we can, through reason and experience, discern standards of right and wrong that exist independent of human will. Now, Modern secularists dismiss this idea of morality as sort of otherworldly superstition imposed by a killjoy clergy. But in fact, Judeo-Christian moral standards are the ultimate utilitarian rules for human conduct. They reflect the rules that are best for man, not in the by and by, but in the here and now. They are like God's instruction manual for the best running of man and the best operation of human society. And by the same token, violations of these moral laws have bad real-world consequences for man and for society. We may not pay the price immediately, but over time, the harm is real. Religion also helps promote moral discipline within society. We're all fallen. We don't automatically conform our conduct to moral rules even, they, even when we know that they are good for us. But religion helps teach, train, and habituate people to want what is good. It does not do this primarily by formal laws, that is by coercive power. It does this through moral education and by framing society's informal rules, the customs and traditions which reflect the wisdom and experience of the ages. In other words, religion helps frame a moral culture within society that instills and reinforces moral discipline. I think we all recognize well, that over the past 50 years, religion has been under increasing attack. On the one hand, we have seen the steady erosion of our traditional Judeo-Christian moral system and a comprehensive effort to drive it from the public square. On the other hand, we see the growing ascendancy of secularism and the doctrine of moral relativism. By any honest assessment, the consequences of this moral upheaval have been grim. Virtually every measure of social pathology continues to gain ground. In 1965, the illegitimacy rate was 8%. The last time I was Attorney General in 1992, it was at 25%. Today, it is at over 40%, and that's the national average. In many of our large urban areas, as we know, it is well over 70%. Along with the wreckage of the family, we are seeing record levels of depression and mental illness. Dispirited young people, soaring suicide rates, increasing numbers of angry and alienated, alienated young males, an increase in senseless violence, and a deadly drug epidemic. As you know, over 70,000 people die a year from drug overdoses. That is more casualties in a year than we experienced during the entire Vietnam War. I, I won't dwell on the bitter results of the new secular age. Suffice it to say that the campaign to destroy the traditional moral order has coincided, 
and I believe has brought with it immense suffering and misery. And yet the forces of secularism, ignoring these tragic results, press on with even greater militancy. Among the militant secularists are many so-called progressives, but where is the progress? We are told we are living in a post-Christian era, but what has replaced the Judeo-Christian moral system? What is it that can fill the spiritual void in the hearts of the individual person? And what is the system of values that can sustain human social life? The fact is that no secular creed has emerged capable of performing the role of religion. Scholarship suggests that religion has been integral to the development and thriving of Homo sapiens since we emerged roughly 50,000 years ago. And it is just for the past few hundred years that we've embarked on this experiment of living without religion. We hear much today about our humane values, but in the final analysis, what undergirds these values? What commands our adherence to them? What we call values today is really nothing more than mere sentimentality, still drawing on the vapor trails of Christianity. Now there have been times and places where the traditional moral order has been shaken in the past. In the past, societies like the human body seem to have a self-healing mechanism, a self-correcting mechanism that gets things back on course if things go too far. The consequences of moral chaos become too pressing. The opinion of decent people rebels. They coalesce and rally against obvious excess. Periods of moral retrenchment follow periods of excess. This is the idea of the pendulum. And we've all thought to ourselves, after a while, the pendulum will swing back. But today we face something different that may mean that we cannot count on the pendulum swinging back. First, is the force, fervor, and comprehensiveness of the assault on organized religion we are experiencing today. This is not decay. This is organized destruction. Secularists and their allies have marshaled all the forces of mass communication, popular culture, the entertainment industry, and academia in an unremitting assault on religion and traditional values. These instruments are used not only to affirmatively promote secular orthodoxy, but also to drown out and silence opposing voices and to attack viciously and hold up to ridicule any dissidents. One of the ironies, as some have observed, is that the secular project has itself become a religion pursued with religious fervor. It is taking on all the trappings of religion, including inquisitions and excommunication. Those who defy the creed risk a figurative burning at the stake, social, educational, and professional ostracism, and exclusion waged through lawsuits and savage social media campaigns. The pervasive and the power of our high-tech popular culture fuels apostasy in other ways. It provides an unprecedented degree of distraction. Part of the human condition has been that there usually has been no way to avoid the big questions that stare us in the face. Are we created or are we purely material accidents? Does our life have any meaning or purpose? But as Blaise Pascal observed, instead of grappling with these questions, many human beings are easily distracted from thinking about the final things. And indeed, we now live in the age of distraction, where we can envelop ourselves in a world of digital stimulation and universal connectivity. And we have almost limitless ways of indulging all our our physical appetites. There's another modern phenomenon that is suppressing society's self-corrective mechanism that's making it harder for us to restore ourselves. 
In the past, when societies are threatened by moral chaos, the overall social costs of licentiousness and irresponsible personal conduct become so high that society ultimately recoils and reevaluates the path it is on. But today, in the face of all the increasing pathologies, instead of addressing the underlying cause, we have cast the state in the role of the alleviator of bad consequences. We call on the state to mitigate the social costs of personal misconduct and irresponsibility. So the reaction to growing illegitimacy is not sexual responsibility, but abortion. The reaction to drug addiction is safe injection sites. The solution to the breakdown of the family is for the state to set itself up as an ersatz husband for the single mother and an ersatz father for the children. The call comes for more and more social program, programs to deal with this wreckage. And while we think we're solving problems, we are underwriting them. We start with an untrammeled freedom, and we end up as dependents of a coercive state on whom we depend. Interestingly, this idea of the state as the alleviator of bad consequences has given rise to a new moral system that goes in hand in hand with the secularization of society. It can be called a system of macro-morality, and in some ways it is an inversion of Christian morality. Christianity teaches a micro-morality. We transform the world by focusing on our own personal morality and transformation. The new secular religion teaches macro-morality. One's morality is not gauged by their private conduct, but rather their commitment to political causes and collective action to address various social problems. This system allows us not to worry so much about the strictures on our own private lives because we can find salvation on the picket line. We can signal our finely tuned moral sensibilities by participating in demonstrations on this cause or on that. Something happened recently that crystallized this difference between the, the, these competing moral systems. I was attending mass at a parish I did not usually attend in Washington, D.C. And at the end of mass, the chairman of the Social Justice Committee got up to give his report to the parish. And he pointed to the growing homeless problem in D.C. and explained that more mobile soup kitchens were needed to feed them. This being a Catholic church, I expected him to call for volunteers to go out and provide for this need as volunteers. But instead, he recounted all the visits that the committee members had made to the DC government to lobby for higher taxes and more spending to fund mobile soup kitchens. A third phenomenon which makes it difficult for the pendulum to swing back is the way the law is being used as a battering ram to break down traditional moral values and to establish moral relativism as the new orthodoxy. Law is being used in a couple of ways. First, either through legislation, but more frequently through judicial interpretation, the forces of secularism have been continually seeking to eliminate laws that reflect traditional moral norms. At first, this involved rolling back laws that prohibited certain kinds of conduct, hence the watershed decision legalizing abortion, and since then the legalization of euthanasia, and the list goes on, as we all know. More recently, we have, been, we have seen the law used aggressively to force religious people and entities to subscribe to practices and policies that are antithetical to their faith. The problem is not that religion is being forced on others. The problem is that irreligion is being forced, secular values are being forced on people of faith. This reminds me of the way Roman emperors just couldn't leave the minority of Christians in the empire alone, although they were loyal to the emperor. They couldn't leave them in peace. They would mandate that they had to violate their conscience 
by offering religious sacrifice to the emperor as a god. Similarly today, militant secularists do not have a live and let live spirit. They are not content to leave religious people alone to practice their faith. Instead, they seem to take delight in compelling people to violate their conscience. For example, the last administration sought to force religious employers, including Catholic religious orders, to violate their sincerely held religious views by funding contraceptive and abortifacient coverage in their health plans. And similarly, recently, California has sought to require pro-life pregnancy centers to provide notices of abortion rights. This refusal to accommodate the free exercise of religion is relatively recent. Just 25 years ago, there was a broad consensus in our society that our laws should accommodate religious belief. In 1993, Congress passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. The purpose of the statute was to promote maximum accommodation to religion when the government adopted broad policies that might impinge on religious practice. And at the time, this was not controversial. It was introduced by Chuck Schumer with 170 co-sponsors in the House, and was introduced by Ted Kennedy and Orrin Hatch with 59 co-sponsors in the Senate, and it passed the Senate by 97 to three. But recently, as the process of secularization has accelerated, this statute has come under assault, and the idea of religious accommodation is falling out of favor. Because this administration firmly supports accommodation of religion, the battleground at this time has largely shifted to the states. Some state governments are now attempting to compel religious individuals and entities to subscribe to practices or to espouse viewpoints that are incompatible with their religion. Ground zero for these attacks on religion are the schools. And to me, this is the most serious challenge to religious liberty today. For anyone who has a religious faith, by far the most important part of exercising that faith is teaching that religion to your children. The passing on of the faith. There is no greater gift we can give our children and no greater expression of love. And for the government to interfere in that process is a monstrous invasion of religious liberty. Yet, this is where the battle is being joined. And I see that is being waged on three fronts. The first front relates to the content of public school curriculum. Many states are adopting curriculum that is incompatible with traditional Judeo-Christian principles, according to which parents are attempting to raise their children. And they often do this without any opt-out provision for religious families. Thus, for example, New Jersey recently passed a law requiring public schools to adopt an LGBT curriculum that many feel is inconsistent with traditional Christian teaching. Similar laws have been passed in California and Illinois. And the Orange County Board of Education in California issued an opinion that, quote, parents who disagree with the instructional material related to gender, gender, gender identity, gender expression, and sexual orientation may not excuse their children from this instruction. Indeed, in some cases, the schools may not even warn parents about the lessons they plan to teach on controversial subjects relating to sexual behavior and relationships. This puts parents who dissent from the secular orthodoxy to a difficult choice. Try to scrape together enough money to send their kids to private school or homeschooling or allow their children to be inculcated with messages that they fundamentally reject. The second axis of attack in the realm of education are state policies designed to starve religious schools of generally available funds and encouraging students to choose secular options rather than religious schools. Montana, for example, created a program that provided tax credits to those who donated to a scholarship program that underprivileged students could use to attend private schools. The point of the program was to provide a greater parental and student choice in education and to provide better education to needy youth. But Montana expressly excluded religious-affiliated private schools from the program. 
And when that exclusion was challenged in courts by parents who wanted to use the scholarship to attend a non-denominational Christian school, the Montana Supreme Court required the state to eliminate the entire program rather than to allow parents to use the scholarships for religious schools. It justified this action by pointing to a provision in the Montana Constitution commonly referred to as the Blaine Amendment. Blaine Amendments, as many of you know, were passed at a time of rampant anti-Catholic animus in this country and typically disqualify religious institutions from receiving any direct or indirect payment from state funds. The case is now in the Supreme Court and the Department of Justice has filed a brief explaining why Montana's Blaine Amendment violates the First Amendment. Finally, the third kind of assault on religious freedom in education have been recent efforts to use state laws to force religious schools to adhere to secular orthodoxy. For example, right here in Indiana, a teacher sued the Catholic Archbishop of Indianapolis for directing the Catholic schools within his diocese that they could not employ teachers in same-sex marriages because the example of those same-sex marriages would undermine the school's teaching on, on the Catholic view of marriage and the complementarity of the sexes. This lawsuit clearly infringes on the First Amendment rights of the archdiocese by interfering both with, with its expressive association and with its church autonomy. And the Department of Justice filed a statement of interest in the state court making these points, and we hope that the state court will soon dismiss this case. Taken together, these cases paint a disturbing picture. We see the state requiring local public schools to insert themselves into contentious social debates without regard to the religious views of their students or parents. In effect, these states are requiring local communities to make their public schools inhospitable to families with traditional religious values. Those families are implicitly told that they should conform or leave. At the same time, pressure is placed on religious schools to abandon their religious convictions. Simply because of their religious character, they are starved of funds. Students who would otherwise choose to attend them are told that they may only receive scholarships if they turn their sights elsewhere. And simultaneously, they are they are the religious schools are threatened in tort cases and undoubtedly will be threatened with the denial of accreditation if they adhere to their religious character. If these measures are successful, those with religious convictions will become still more marginalized. I do not mean to suggest that there is no hope for moral renewal in our country, but we cannot sit back and just hope that the pendulum is going to swing back towards sanity. As Catholics, we are committed to the Judeo-Christian values that have made this country great. And we know that the first thing we have to do to promote this renewal is to ensure that we are putting our principles into practice in our own personal lives. We understand that only by transforming ourselves will we transform the world beyond ourselves. This is tough work. It's hard to resist the constant seductions of contemporary society. And this is where we need the grace and prayer and the help of the church. Beyond this, we must place greater emphasis on the moral education of our children. Education is not vocational training. It is leading our children to the recognition that there is truth and helping them develop the facility to discern and love the truth and the discipline to live by it. We cannot have a moral renaissance unless we succeed in passing to the next generation our faith and values in full vigor. The times are hostile to this. Public agencies, including public schools, are becoming secularized and increasingly actively promoting moral relativism. If ever there was a need for a resurgence of Catholic education and more generally religiously affiliated schools, it is today. I think we should do all we can to promote and support authentic Catholic education at all levels. Finally, as lawyers, we should be particularly active in the struggle that is being waged against religion on the legal plane. 
We must be vigilant to resist efforts by forces of secularization to drive religious viewpoints from the public square and to impinge upon our exercise of our faith. I can assure you that as long as I am Attorney General, the Department of Justice will be at the forefront of this effort, ready to fight for the most cherished of all our American liberties, the freedom to live according to our faith. Thank you for the opportunity to talk with you today, and God bless you and Notre Dame.